Hey, Dan, what's uh, what's up? You look a little perturbed. I'm not sure what to make of this, but maybe you've heard that film producers in the United States have made a slasher remake of Winnie the Pooh. It's called Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. Oh, come on. No, no, I'm serious, man. The copyright on A.E. Milne's original stories have expired. So now it's all in the public domain, and now everything's getting a remake, you know, in whatever violent, bloody vision the filmmakers have. So now Winnie the Pooh and Piglet... Upset that Christopher Robin has left the 100-acre wood, you know, that he's gone to college. They go on a violent rampage. Wow, that's really horrible. Yeah, well, Winnie the Pooh isn't the only beloved character that's getting a cheesy makeover now that it's in the public domain. Apparently, Bambi and Peter Pan are expected to get R-rated makeovers, which got me thinking... Oh, Nigan, I don't think I like where this is going. No, 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 hear me out here. So you know how, for our podcast, we have the person whose name shall never be mentioned. You mean... Tonto. Yes, Tonto. Okay, so we all agreed Tonto would be our unseen, unheard passenger on the pod. Well, what if Tonto found out that we had excluded him from the podcast and then went on his own bloody vengeful rampage? Of course, the first person he would kill is Adam. Whoa, wait a minute. And then he would systematically start knocking off all the people who helped make the podcast happen. Free Press editor Paul Simin would definitely have to go. And then he'd start going after us. It would all end up in a dramatic bloody showdown at the CJNU studios beneath the Fairmont Hotel. We could call it Tonto Black Mask. Black Death. That's some idea, Dan. Uh, honestly, you know, I'm torn between calling an agent to sell this idea some Hollywood studio and trying to find you some help to work through some stuff. Is, isn't there a way we could do both? The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Nigan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Negan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Let. Welcome everyone to another episode of uh, the Negan and the Lone Ranger podcast, the podcast they said could not be done, and we just keep on doing it. We keep on doing it, and the, actually people say that it shouldn't be done. It shouldn't be done, <laughs> which is, that's a whole different conversation. Uh, but uh, we, we've been doing it long enough and, uh, and you know, really exposing people to it on all kinds of different platforms that I think it's time for our first ever regular segment, reader mailbag, it's viewer, listener mailbag. Avalanched. And you think to yourself, nobody writes letters anymore and they would be right. Well, yeah, I, I mean... They write emails, and they send yeah. voice messages. Yeah. And they... Uh, and tweets. Still workshopping the name of the feature. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. And there'll be a theme song, you know, just kind of like one of the late night talk shows, you know? <laughs> Did you know, like, you can do a theme song uh, using the chords uh, to Wild Thing? Like, you can just, like, you can make any theme song. It's like, reader mail, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. Don't, don't. So I could I can do like I'm a million the, of those. I'm very excited to hear our potential theme song for every segment that we do. Uh, <laughs> but you know, like the tweets, for example. I mean, we we've been getting lots of great feedback from people. I mean, people. One of the tweets that I think we got this week was really a positive one, in that you know there aren't a lot of podcasts talking about Manitoba politics. Isn't a lot of uh, podcasts with. Uh, 
uh, indigenous and non-indigenous guy talking about sort of Canada as a whole. And and I think that, you know, one of my uh, friends uh, is a faithful listener sends me a text every time that she hears everything and then just sort of gives me a play-by-play of her thoughts through the entire nice. podcast. Yeah, that's really nice. Like, yeah, like I, I want to uh, be clear. The majority of the feedback we've been getting is positive. And, and you know, and that's uh, like that's incredibly encouraging because you would think that just like sitting in front of a couple of microphones and yakking would be like really easy work. But it's, it's, it's actually remarkably difficult <laughs> to pull this together. It's, it's a lot more work than I thought. <laughs> yeah. So uh, fool me once. Uh, but uh, uh, no, it, you know, but there, every once in a while, like in the midst of our genuinely, uh, genuinely sunny experience, there's like a ray of darkness, if that makes any sense. <laughs> a ray of darkness. Well, so, and it mostly yeah. comes in the form of an email late at night. Uh, with some uh, anonymous responding uh, email address or something or other. Yeah. I remember uh, my very first couple weeks of the Free Press, I got a uh, picture. They had cut out my tiny picture, you know, the little tiny picture that they use in the paper, drawn a, a Hitler mustache on me, and it was just F-U-C-K. That was the only thing they wrote on. And they put this. they actually took the time to put this in an envelope and then mail it to me. <laughs> Well, uh, we will applaud the reader's uh, sense of economy. <laughs> they actually spent money on a stamp. Well, that, you see, that, and that is old school. Um, a lot of the stuff I get is uh, email and uh, Twitter. Uh, a week ago, I got uh, a tweet uh, aimed, like after I had tweeted out a new episode, came back, and all it said was, again, once again, a master of economy, said, uh, Lone Ranger, equal sign, Racist, and uh, you know, and, and I immediately—I think I mentioned—I was reading it, and you know, my wife was sitting at the dining room table, you know, working on her computer, and I said, "I am dying to ask this guy what he means," you know, like, like little context, please, you know, or you know, like John Stewart, <laughs> go on, <laughs> and uh, and you know, I and she looked up at me, and it was one of those like, "Yeah, you do that, and you're single again." So uh, I think we need to give some classes, maybe some lessons. Maybe we should do this as a segment every week. Uh, some lessons on what is irony. <laughs> oh, man. You know, like I just the, the possibilities are almost endless, but it really like, you know, let's be fair to our listeners. OK, let's start with something, something more accessible, like. Uh, why does the Lone Ranger make you creep out? You know, like what is the, what the Lone Ranger that makes you creep out? Well, so that always stops for me when I show people the picture of the podcast and then what we drew it upon, which was an actual picture from yeah. uh, the Lone Ranger in Tonto, and uh, we uh, we recreated that image in our you know our, our multi billion dollar free press studios, <laughs> which is I think a dark room <laughs> in the back that we had a lamp in. That's right. <laughs> But you know, I, I you know I want to share something with you, Dan. I I got a uh, voicemail. Uh, wow. It was in response to uh, some of the work that we're doing, and uh, I just want to play a little clip for you right now. Mm. It's yeah, this is, I've I've got I'm full technological. I've set it up with Adam. Adam, uh, just just play a little clip of what I'm calling uh, my biggest fan. Okay, here we go. 
sad part of this country is is uh, we as the voter used to have control and say in what happens in uh, government. But uh, no, it's uh, unions and special interest groups have the power now. They're the ones that dictate what uh, laws get passed, which legislation gets read, what goes through Senate, and then gets uh, passed into uh, official law. It's a large country. It's a vast country and a lot of different views. And uh, the West has no time for uh, the GTA voter or the swamp out there in Ottawa. Charter rights, as far as I'm concerned, throw the thing out. It's useless. It just helps those special interest groups and unions that control the government that they want in power. This country does not work anymore. It's not working for every working class or even a retired Canadian across this country. And then the West feels nothing more than just a resource colony. I always have been treated that way. So f*** Ottawa, f*** you Liberals, and NDP. You assholes can have your f***ing government and stuff your charter rights up your ass. We will go it alone if we have to. Bottom line is, uh i am speechless wow yeah like uh, i didn't think i'd have to break the bleep machine out quite so much yeah, but thank yeah God there the it is <laughs> i i all i can say is the charter's in trouble the, yeah well in certain parts of the country the charter's in trouble and you know and that is one of those like hey dude man like don't hold back just <laughs> Tell us what you think, what you really think. Yeah, that guy is passionate. Uh, yeah. He's passionate. Well, so this is uh, this is a good segue. The big news of the week was the release of a special commission inquiry into the use of the Federal Emergencies Act during the trucker convoy. Justice Paul Rouleau uh, issued the report this past week, and um, it was a highly anticipated report because if if uh, Justice Rouleau had come forward with an analysis that indicated that the use of the Emergencies Act, which you know really is an extreme piece of legislation, but it was instrumental in removing the demonstrators from uh, downtown Ottawa around Parliament Hill, that uh, it could be well, it, it would have been a seismic moment in uh, in the political narrative in this country, and uh, and who knows what. You know what uh, what it may have produced in terms of electoral results. Uh, uh, Justice Rouleau went the other way. He basically said he was disappointed, uh, almost like a, a very emotive uh, about the fact that he was uh, he didn't want to come to this conclusion, but that it was in fact the right he, tool for the job. And he says that any other reasonable person could have found something different, which is also an interesting way to kind of, um, I mean, the word diplomacy, I think, in this presentation is something that uh, uh, many people have commented lots on. Um, I think w- I was on uh, Power and Politics, and Paul Wells uh, called it one of the sort of middle-of-the-road f- 
most middle of the road inquiry findings you could have ever imagined. I mean, because what he did is he spent a lot of time, uh, you know, lauding the government, saying that they did the right thing in this scenario. And he also made out uh, a bunch of bad actors, Doug Ford in particular, mm-hmm. for doing nothing. And then Ottawa for the Ottawa police for creating this situation. But then he also said that <clears throat> some other reasonable person might have found a different conclusion. And that's an interesting finding. Most inquiries, when you uh, come out with the finding, you're, you know, this is what it is, and there's no other way to think of it. Um, he, In the opening words, he said that there's multiple ways that you can see this particular act, because it's kind of so archaic, it's an archaic act. Uh, and it leads to uh, 56 recommendations. Uh, I mean, this is like a, you know, it would make your bookcase sag. It's five volumes, 2,000 pages, 56 uh, recommendations. And it's broad ranging. It talks about the failure of federalism, the failure of federal and provincial departments to work together, uh, the failure of... Uh, policing systems, the RCMP and the Ottawa police to talk to one another and then come up with a plan. And then, of course, the much well-known issue that I think the Ottawa has with Doug Ford. And in fact, Doug Ford just decided to go to his, uh, I mean, famously go to his cottage during the middle of all of this and just ignore it and make sure that, uh, you know, it was left only and only once he took action when it was the bridge in Windsor. Yeah, you know, it's, again, uh, I think the, uh, I like the analysis because it does not applaud the government for using the Emergencies Act. It does acknowledge that it was a necessary evil at the time with all of the preceding failures. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think probably for law enforcement in this country, um, we had never had, well, I mean, not since the 1970s, really. We had never had street-level protests or violence or demonstrations of this magnitude with this kind of a threat, uh, really, since um, uh, the FLQ crisis in, uh, in Quebec. So I think there was a steep learning curve, um, you know, to a certain extent, but, you know, I always felt all the way along, too, that the expectations that police could have been more aggressive and more, you know, earlier. I, I also think, though, that the protesters were looking for violence. They were they were looking for a reason. So, yeah, certainly some of them. I mean, yeah, I mean, there were lots of people. Uh, and I think that one thing that's come out fairly clear is that there were a lot of people who came there f- with some pretty legitimate beefs and perhaps were inflamed by the prime minister calling them a fringe minority. I mean, these were people who uh, felt genuinely disenfranchised because they uh, of a vaccine mandate for truckers, particularly. And, um, you know, uh, I've come out very harsh to say that's a very selfish approach. But I also appreciate that it's a democracy. Yeah. You're allowed to have an opinion and you're allowed to express your opinion. Um, you know, like this inquiry was so uh, extensive and quite impressive in lots of different ways. I mean, everybody got their say. And I mean, the residents of Ottawa were actually the ones who got the least amount of time, who were the most impacted, but they got the least amount of time. Meanwhile, the convoy organizers, people like Pat King and so on, got a whole week on a national platform. I mean, there was no free speech uh, being stomped on there, that you were allowed to speak on the national news every single night and have your views shared. Uh, but in the end of the day, it came up with some very simple recommendations like update the Emergencies Act. And then the rather 
absolutely crazy idea of having a national coordinator when you have an emergency. Like, yeah, you, the, can like hear, you can hear a hundred palms slapping a hundred foreheads at the at the, the, like, the, the, the brilliant simplicity of that. If idea. we have a national emergency, we should have some organization and somebody at the head of that organization in charge making decisions, working with all levels of government. Yeah, the um, I want to get to... Uh, Pierre Polyev's uh, reaction to this in a minute because it's key to what's happening in federal politics. But, you know, uh, his his comment about the failures of federalism uh, were the most poignant for me because it really is, it, it demonstrates how, I mean, you know, the convoy was erupting in, in different communities. You know, it, it, it the, you mentioned the bridge to Windsor. There was a fairly significant protest both in downtown Winnipeg and also at the border crossing at Emerson uh, and in Alberta at a border crossing. And you know what? Like if the if the if the federal government and provincial first ministers, if they're not on the same page about uh, what needs to be done, uh, then, uh, you know, there I, I doubt there's going to be an opportunity for us to be more effective at dealing with similar protests in the future. I mean, in Manitoba, you know, as we well know, the the premier of Manitoba, Heather Stephenson, on the one hand, uh, you know, was uh, really condemning the federal government for a lack of action, but on the other hand, wanted to condemn the federal government for the use of the Emergencies Act. And, you know, Doug Ford basically, you know, became like the uh, Groundhog Day. Uh, <laughs> oh, and I, I don't mean he didn't play the Bill Murray part. He played the Groundhog. So, well, you know, Ontario is yeah. trying to take a bit of credit. Once they saw the results of the inquiry, Ontario was trying to say Doug Ford's government was like, well, we call the emergency first. And, I mean, but yet you didn't do anything about it. Yeah. And, and, in fact, you were a hindrance, if anything. And then you refused to testify. So Pierre Polyev, the conservative leader, has, uh, uh, you know, he has danced a, a very fine line between trying to court and support the convoy uh, organizers. Bringing them coffee. Yeah. Standing uh, with them yeah. for selfies. And I mean, like, I think the the idea that uh, the, the federal government overreacted or treated these people unfairly or illegally, which if, you know, that was the risk, is if Justice Rouleau had come out and said it was it didn't meet the threshold, that it was essentially a, an illegal act, an uh, invocation of the legislation. Um, so his reaction was, was really great. Um, and I think that I want to be careful about how I present this because – uh, Mr. Poliev, who is not a friend of the podcast, and by that I mean he, his his office continues to refuse my. I was going to say, but have, but has been invited to be a friend many times. Every tight, week, hold tight, is not yet a friend. Of is the not podcast. yet a friend of the podcast. And yes, uh, for those uh, people who uh, in Mr. Poliev's uh, office who are listening to this podcast, I just want to let you know, I will still send you emails every week, uh, inviting you to be on the podcast, and uh, you know. Uh, we'll leave it at that. But anyways, his reaction uh, was pretty hilarious. I think we've underestimated his his uh, comedic chops. Uh, quote, the only reason we had this emergency is because Justin Trudeau wanted it to happen. This was an emergency that Justin Trudeau created by attacking his own population. Okay, so you know what's funny is if you took that quote, 
it, it doesn't sound dissimilar to some of the testimony from Pat King and the other convoy organizers. So, I mean, I really, I think that, um, you know, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the political scientists and other people reacting to this believe it was a 100% win for uh, the Trudeau government. And uh, there was no downside. Like some of the comments that I read from political commentators, not necessarily from columnists, but from, you know, pundits, uh, were ridiculous. There's always a downside to a story like to a story like this. And the downside is that the the people who are angry enough to drive their trucks to occupy cities and angry enough to shut down Ottawa, yeah, they're they're even more pissed off. If it were possible, they're well, even more pissed there's, off. I mean, the uh, acrimony and the rancor, I think, is at full force now. Um, and if there's one thing that I think, you know, the thing I noticed most about the Pierre Polyev uh, press conference is that he spoke for seven minutes in French at the start. Yeah. And and I think that's interesting. I mean, he refused to speak English for a very long segment. Normally, most federal politicians, they usually start with English. Or what they do is they'll go French, English, French, English, French, English. Yeah. That's not what Polyev did. He started and did seven minutes in French, which tells you a lot about who and what's happening within that party. Where are they trying to, to appeal to? But then also the fact that, you know, and there was many parts of the Ottawa convoy that came from Quebec and, yeah. and that had very significant roles to play there. Uh, but... You know, if Polyev's tagline is, which is what the press conference tended to be all about, he he gave a litany of things that have uh, happened during Justin Trudeau's reign. People can't buy a house. People um, are even blamed overdose deaths. He even blamed long lines in emergency rooms, which is absurd because we're talking about premiers here that are governing these systems. And uh, it's not Justin Trudeau's, as in fact, we saw Justin Trudeau this past week give $46 billion to premiers. Um, So... He's doing something anyways. I'm not telling you that's perfect, but it's something. And so this tagline of everything is broken or everything feels broken, that's an actual tagline that it seems that he is going with on full double down. Uh, Everything is broken. Everything is broken. Everything is broken. Well, this inquiry report seems to tell you that, yes, federalism is in trouble. Yes, policing doesn't seem to work very well. Uh, yes, we don't have basic things like a national coordinator, but democracy seems to be just okay. <laughs> it seems to be just fine. It's not broken. In fact, it's probably stronger now because of an act like this. Um, the fact that for six weeks, Canadians witnessed a massive uh, expression of divergent opinions. And some of those opinions, most Canadians are dead set against. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, remembering back to our, to the angry man, as we now call him, <laughs> who... Uh, my, also called my biggest fan. Well, if he keeps sending you messages. He's right? clearly very passionate. Yeah. I had a guy, uh, as an aside, I had a guy uh, here in town who uh, used to email me all the time. And, and at, at the time he was emailing me, he actually had a show on a... Uh, Radio station sponsored by a post-secondary institution in the city. And, uh, yeah, and it was like I kept some of the emails because, like, people don't believe the, how vile some of the stuff it, that, that we get is. And, uh, yeah, like, he, he wanted my family to contract fatal diseases. And he, he talked about, you know, leaving defecation, like, around my house and on me and... <laughs> 
Yeah, like really, yeah. So, uh, like, I think uh, I think the thing that I worry about the most, and I think back to your angry, you know, robust fan, you know, is this, but it's this idea that uh, on this topic, we can't have uh, civil discussion. So I, I agree with you completely that democracy is alive and well. Like, we're having a debate about this vigorous discussion about this but you know the like the problem is that it's like there's no you know like with a lot of a lot of my readers if they engage me in a relatively civil fashion they know I'll write back to them but you know I, you know like if it starts out like you're an embarrassment to journalism you know your newspaper is an embarrassment that's just and, my emails yeah that's right yeah <laughs> But I'm being healed through the magic powers of the podcast. <laughs> well, no, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the problem is we don't listen as much as we speak, as my uncle would say. Yeah. I mean, we're we're supposed to be listening twice as much as we speak, and and I think that's the main problem. Uh, we uh, speaking of listening, we have an amazing storyteller. As uh, as soon as we had seen her way off at the Grammys down in Los Angeles, uh, you texted me right away and said, we need to get her on the podcast, and so I did. So I, I, a few texts later and a few messages later, um, I got Rhonda Head, who is a well-known Cree soprano uh, singer. Uh, she's very popular on radio stations across the country, uh, and she is also a recording artist with a, um, I'm not sure what they call it, but it's the American Recording uh, there's the a certain academy. the academy that you have to have, yeah. uh, and so she went down to the Grammys just a few weeks ago. Uh, very much, uh, very proud Winnipegger, proud Jets fan. Uh, showed uh, showed Jets off flag. her colors. Yeah. Anyway, so we, I won't spoil the story, but I hope that you enjoy it. And uh, we got a great feature interview that you and I did uh, just a little while ago. Yeah, you're like this is the uh, Negan as Rainmaker episode of the podcast, right? So it's, I'm just kind of sitting back and. You know, who else do you know that's interesting? So, you know, you, you had become uh, sort of a chummy with uh, former, former Liberal MP, former Liberal uh, Cabinet Minister Jane Philpott, who was also a central figure in one of the uh, Trudeau government's early, you know, most vigorous Scandals. Con- controversy. <laughs> Controversies, yeah. yeah. Definitely controversy. Uh, and uh, and she's also an incredibly thoughtful, she's a physician and has uh, both a politician's and physician's view of uh, the debate we're still undergoing about the fate of national health care. And uh, we caught her just after the uh, announcement of the uh, health care agreement uh, or the funding that uh, Justin Trudeau um, and the federal liberals have uh, are currently negotiating with the provinces over forty six billion dollars of new funding and then several hundred billion dollars more of uh, you know mandated funding for federal health transfers. So she's got really interesting insights. Uh, I wrote actually a column to talk a little bit about the challenges of what first minister conferences, which is when the prime minister and the premiers meet, and who's not at the table. So I hope people take mm-hmm. a look at my column as well. Um, and I quote Jane in that, but uh, without further ado, let's uh, turn it over to uh, Rhonda and then hear from uh, Jane Philpott. I'm Rhonda Head, and I am a Recording Academy member. This story is about a Cree woman that went to the Grammys. 
I was walking around Polo Park the day I left for Los Angeles and I walked by the Jets gear store and I walked in there and I, and I, I, I said, I want a Winnipeg Jets flag. And I, I, I bought it and I, I told the, the, the uh, guy at the register, I said, I'm going to hang, I'm going to show this flag off at the Grammys. And he, I don't think he believed me. <laughs> the day of the Grammys, we got up early. We started getting ready, got our hair done, got our makeup done, put on our dresses. And it was the pre-Grammy Awards. So we, we, we walked, it's, it's a separate building where they have the pre-Grammy Awards from the, from the, the show that's televised. We arrived early. And uh, we got when we got there, there was so many security all over the place. And then we got shooed into this one line, and we were meeting so many, so many people from uh, you know from all over the world. And and uh, majority of the most of the people that we, we we were we were talking to were all nominated for a, a Grammy award. And and the one thing too that that was I thought it was uh, pretty awesome. One of the musicians recognized me. He came up to me. He goes, "Rhonda," I said, "Yes." And he goes, "We follow each other on, on, uh, on on social media." I went, "Oh well, so great to meet you." And so we we got our photo taken, and and uh, so that was that was such an amazing time. Where you could just feel the really the excitement in the air, and we found out we were in the wrong line. We were, we ended up lining up where all the Grammy nominees were lining up. So everyone, all the musicians we met were all Grammy nominees. So it was so much fun. And then we got to meet so many other musicians and other Recording Academy members. It was a lot of networking, so much fun. I got to hang out with some of the Indigenous Recording Academy members as well. We we went walking right up to the stage and I pulled out the Winnipeg Jets flag and I got my photo taken uh, with the Grammys backdrop behind behind me, and and you know some of the people in the crowd were like, "Hey, is that the Winnipeg Jets?" And I went, "Yes," and I I uh, waved the flag around again. It was it was so much fun. Also, want to tell a really quick story about the Grammys that happened last year in Las Vegas. We got invited to this really cool after party at a casino where Elvis had his residency there before it used to be called the international inn now it's called the westgate hotel so we went there and it was it was on the the penthouse and it's called the barry manilow suite and and it was so awesome like there was a buffet of food there's a um piano player playing a beautiful white grand piano and and uh you know there's people signing up to sing so i saw i signed up to sing i sang at last it was pretty cool people were dancing when i was when i was singing and then we started roaming around the the barry manilow suite it was huge and then i walked by the pool and and i slipped and i fell in and and you know i was wearing my my uh gown from from um the award show and oh it was it was so crazy when i was falling and i was thinking as if i'm falling in this pool right now so there you go i made a splash in vegas and at least my name's getting out there right so that's my grammy experience from opaskua cree nation to the grammys in los angeles this is when i knew this cree musician could take over the world i could say all right, so welcome everybody to uh, to our feature interview today. Uh, we are so pleased uh, to have uh, not just uh, a f- physician, former member of parliament, 
uh, a former you know cabinet minister, uh, but also former Winnipegger uh, Jane Philpot, who's joining us on the Negon and Lone Ranger podcast. Thanks for coming on us with us on the trail there, Jane. I'm so happy to be on the trail with you. We uh, we're we're so happy to have you, and of course, uh, one of the reasons why we were able to bring you on the podcast here is uh, you and I hung out at the uh, Governor General Leadership Awards uh, about eight nine months ago uh, in Ontario, and uh, we met. We were on a panel together, and I uh, quickly asked you if you could do a podcast in a couple of weeks, and here we are now, eight months later. So that's how well organized we are. It's worth waiting for this conversation. I hope. Okay. Um, well, you know, we we want to, you know, not many people, I think, in Winnipeg uh, and Manitoba might know what you've been up to since your political life. And uh, now you're at Queen's University. And uh, maybe if you could just take a brief moment and tell our listeners, uh, what have you been up to, um, you know, since having a very high profile job? Uh, as, uh, you know, minister in uh, liberal government, federal liberal government, what have you been doing since? Well, thanks for asking that. And and again, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, as some of your listeners will recall, I had a wonderful opportunity to serve the country uh, in the government from uh, 2015 to 2019. My political career came to a rather abrupt uh unexpectedly abrupt end in 2019. I did try to run again as an independent uh, unsuccessfully. So uh, that uh, left me to try to figure out what was next. Thankfully, I had a previous career that I could uh, look back to. I'm a family doctor and also had taught at uh, at the University of Toronto in their faculty of medicine. So I was exploring ideas around both medicine and medical education and got the wonderful opportunity to become the dean at Queen's University. We have a faculty of health sciences here. So we train doctors, nurses, OTs and PTs. And uh, it's my great pleasure to help uh, do all that work. And it's a really important time to be in the business of training health workers. So that's what I've been doing since the, since 2020 and really enjoying it. And I don't think a lot of people know that uh, you have a lot, a very long, lengthy experience overseas and particularly in Africa. And, uh, and I think that's interesting that people might not know about then, you know, in so many ways, and you you know, the term third world is never really appropriate. But I mean, it, it does give a kind of way in which we understand that there's certain sicknesses and health issues that are in other parts of the world that Canada hasn't dealt with um, in for quite a long time. Interestingly enough, of course, many of those things are coming back on First Nations. And so you've also done lots of work with First Nations. Uh, not only were you the minister uh, for Indigenous peoples, but also, uh, you know, you worked with Anishinaabe Aski Nation. And uh, I think that's interesting. People might not know a lot about that. Do you work on First Nations? What's the connection between health work on First Nations, health work in Africa? That's a great and interesting question. So you're right. I spent, uh, our family spent about a decade living in West Africa in a country called Niger, or the French would say La, La République du Niger. It's a, a large country, most of which is Sahara Desert. We lived in the bottom part of the country, which is the habitable part. Uh, it's one of the poorest countries in the world. Uh, and we lived uh, and worked at a little 
rural hospital, 500 kilometers from the capital city. And I was introduced there to a real life understanding of what makes people sick and what makes them healthy. And to realize that it's things like climate and geography and uh, poverty and lack of access to education and geopolitical forces that are actually the biggest determinants of people's health. And uh, so I think that was interesting in terms of my future work, particularly work with Indigenous peoples who are, are uh, faced by some of the same reasons that, that cause poor health outcomes. Uh, but the other thing I, in a more positive light, I would say from that is it exposed me to um, being, to learning an alternate worldview and a worldview that had a lot to teach me. Uh, I've often thought about um, communitarian decision-making that I saw witnessed in uh, villages in Niger, where we went to work on training village health workers and understood that if you were going to implement a training program that it needed to be introduced in a particular way and with the support of the chief and and council uh, leadership of those communities uh, and that we would have large community meetings to be able to decide whether or not they were interested in getting community health teaching. So uh, I gained a lot of respect for the way that decisions were made in those communities. And I, I think it helped me many, many years later uh, when I had the privilege of visiting many First Nations uh, communities across the country, as well as uh, some Inuit and Métis communities. And I, I recognized some of the uh, perspectives that, of course, were different, but that the, the concept of making decisions as a community was something that uh, had always struck me as uh, a, a sad a sad impact of colonialism that it had taken away uh, looking at that alternate way of making decisions together. So I just want to, uh, oh yeah, by the way, I'm here too. Uh, I'm, I'm Dan and I'm, you know, like he's on the trail as well. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I know there's kind of a loving going on here, but you know, I'm, I'm here too to ask questions uh, and welcome. Um so uh, I noted your comment about your abrupt, uh, your unexpectedly abrupt end to your political career. And before we get into that, I actually want to ask you a little bit about why you got involved in politics and all, uh, you, you know, at all. Because I, I am, I'm always somewhat fascinated, and it, I, I think medical professionals tend to fall into this category: people that, that have accomplished so much. They've become leaders in in the field of, of medical science or, or you know medical services, and then they want to get involved in politics. and uh, And I'm just wondering what was the like what was the decision making process? Uh, who approached you, and how did you make the decision that you wanted to jump into uh, electoral politics, which is you know pretty rough and tumble world. Yeah, thanks for the question, Dan, and I'm I'm glad you jumped in. Uh, there's, there's a long version of the story. I'll try to tell you kind of a shorter version, but, you know, people go into medicine, I think, wanting to try to think that they're going to make people healthier. And you can do that as a doctor, one-on-one, -on -one, you know, one patient at a time, sometimes a family at a time. But after a while, you learn the things that I was referring to earlier about the fact that actually 
you know, doctors can only fix so much, right? You can, you're, by the time you see somebody, they're pretty far down the stage of, of whatever their particular illness might be. And if only we could have backed up the interventions in that person's life to uh, make sure that they had food on the table and a decent education and a decent place to live, that actually they might not have ended up with that illness in the first place. And so I, you know, right from the time that I spent that decade in Africa, started thinking about all of that um, and then got particularly involved in some specific areas of work like HIV, which was something that was an issue that was on our minds when we lived in Africa and got involved in fundraising for HIV. Um, this is all coming around to answering your question, but through my HIV fundraising work, I had a chance to meet former Prime Minister Paul Martin and have coffee with him, which was a huge privilege for me. And I uh, had this conversation with him, which I learned he has had with many other people later. And I expressed to him my frustration at the system and all of the things that were wrong with the system that meant that people around the world didn't have fair access mm -hmm. to healthcare, et cetera. And I made the mistake, I guess, of making an offhand comment to him where I said, you know, someday I should, I, I'd just like to get in there and change some laws, change the way that we do things in this country because it's making people sick. And he said, what, 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 did you just say you're going to run for office? And I said, oh no, that's crazy. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a family doctor. I got four kids. I got a busy life. And he said, no, no, no. If you <laughs> are even thinking about it a little bit, and if you could actually get run and get yourself in the office, maybe get around a cabinet table, he said, you could fix some of those things in 10 minutes. And all your ranting about it on the outside um, will take years for you to see change. And that was like, boom, I like went off in my mind and I thought, oh, that's where the levers are. That's how you <laughs> So I just started working away at it. And five years later, I was elected. Well, you know, having the Paul Martin, uh, you know, seal of approval is not the worst way of entering uh, electoral politics. And I've interviewed him a number of times and he is, uh, he's oddly inspiring. Like he's kind of you know, I, I'm not. I'm not sure he ever made the the best guy to run the country, but he's pretty passionate about public service. Um, okay, so that so you 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 know you're you're aimed at uh, changing the system. Um, now it should be noted that like when you decided to run for the Liberals, it wasn't like a lock that you were going to be in government. Um, you know, the 2015 election was uh, quite a thrill ride. Um, so uh, wh why at that time? I mean, obviously, Paul Martin, I'm sure, had some influence on it. But was it just, you know, was the liberal were the liberals the obvious camp for you to set up in? Another really great question. So I uh, had not been a partisan. Uh, I actually think most Canadians don't really fit into any one party perfectly, right? I, I, I'd like to try to see some good things in all of them. You know, some of them, it's harder to find the good things, but, uh, and some things I disagree with in, in all of our major parties, but I did decide, uh, I was frustrated. That was, those were in the days, uh, latter years of Stephen Harper's government. And I was upset with some things he had done around refugee healthcare, et cetera. So I wasn't going to sign up with them. And the liberals had been kind of wiped out in the 2011 election, but I thought, well, there's a group that's going to try to rebuild. 
I'm going to sign up and see if I can help them rebuild. So you're right. We didn't know, uh, didn't know where it would go, but I was uh, very, uh, very blessed that it, uh, it, it turned out in a good way. You know, it's funny. I, I also received some, you know, I received phone calls from Paul Martin. He used to phone me all the time. And, uh, you know, you used to read my articles. And this is way back when I was still just a PhD student. And one time he was stuck. Remember when that volcano in Iceland uh, grounded all the planes in the world for a while? Um, he phoned me from Iceland uh, being stuck there for a week. And apparently he was he spent that a portion of that week reading my articles, <laughs> my academic articles, which is very weird. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's lots to say about Paul Martin, but, uh, but I was very, very impressed by that, that he was reading uh, all these different things and just getting up to speed on things. Uh, you know, I think most people uh, know about the um, meltdown, implosion issue, whatever we want to say uh, in terms of the way in which he left the party. Uh, but was there any signs of uh, a fracturing of that relationship uh, with uh, Trudeau's leadership, with uh, elements of the party? I mean, you serve many posts, the Minister of Health, uh, Ministers of Indigenous Relations, uh, Treasury Board, you know, um, you held many very senior, important public posts. Uh, were there signs of things going wrong uh, before 2015? Or? You mean before 2019? Oh, sorry, before 2019. Yeah, so but from 2015 to 2019. Um, I don't know that the uh, events of 2019 were entirely predictable until just before then. I mean, there's always give and take around the cabinet table and, you know, the, all the decisions that were made there were not all ones that I, you know, would have necessarily been my first choice, but you, you're required to do a little bit of compromise along the way, be a team player to the extent that you can and walk out of that cabinet room um, of one mind and solidarity, even if it's not exactly what you would have wanted. So that had, you know, with a few exceptions that had gone relatively well. Um, but, you know, as, as you said, I, I, uh, a bunch of things happened during those years. And one of them was that I, especially because of my work in both health and Indigenous services, I spent a lot of time really embedded in thinking about issues of Indigenous rights uh, and the recognition and implementation of those rights. And I had a really great teacher um, and the teacher was became my friend and that was Jody Wilson-Raybould who was the Attorney General and Minister of Justice. And as a result of, of uh, watching what those conversations were like around the cabinet table, I think though that's where I started to wonder where things were going to go because uh, as you know, she uh, uh, is a, a, an outspoken champion of the recognition and implementation of indigenous rights. And there were times that that, message was not uh, one that people wanted to hear. And then, of course, without going into all of the detail, um, there was this whole matter of her being pressured to intervene in a criminal prosecution. Uh, and it was for me, I mean, it was for me something that uh, I couldn't sit idly by. Um, 
in part because I feel extremely strongly, as I would hope all Canadians do, that politicians don't interfere with the prosecution. With it's, it's a, There's a very clear delineation of powers and what happened was wrong. Uh, and it was later proven to be wrong. So that was something I couldn't maintain solidarity about. Um, and then, of course, as I've talked to you about as well, Nigan, I couldn't sit idly by while uh, Canada's first and only Indigenous Minister of Justice and Attorney General was uh, was treated in the way that she was and where she did the right thing and was um, pushed aside. So I think the... Um... Obviously, in real time, the reporting on this, and I'll, I'll do the uh, the very, very uh, micro background, SNC-Lavalin, Montreal-based engineering firm, criminal charges of corruption, um, negotiations on uh, uh, a, uh, a, a resolution of the case, and initially the, the federal prosecutors wanted to prosecute the case. And uh, the prime minister's office felt that they had created a piece of legislation that should have allowed for a plea bargain. And in the middle of all that, uh, the the attorney general uh, was pressured to uh, intervene in the case. Okay, so that that's the other that's the messy background of it all. Um, you know, right now, I'm I'm going to ask you another question about 2019. But I mean, right now, you know, the the liberal government is is uh, facing sort of a watershed moment. It's it's actually uh, Prime Minister Trudeau is actually he's he's been governing now for quite a long time. Like he's about to to get into that very long time period. Uh, it's a minority mandate. They're running behind in the poll. Liberals are running behind in the polls. The government continues to seem to have a whole host of problems that seem to be tied to judgment. If we look back to 2015, uh, and I ask you how much of what happened in 2015 or 2019 that derailed your political career, that forced you to make the tough decisions that you did. How much of that is due to the prime minister and the culture of, of the government he created? Prime ministers are not always responsible for everything that happens in a government. But I think the culture of uh, of the executive council, of the relationship between the, the first minister and cabinet ministers, I think that is 100% on, on the... Uh, so would you say, like, is, is it really... You know, Mr. Trudeau's influence that really was the the spark to that whole fire. Hmm. Wow, you guys are asking hard questions. Yeah. <laughs> Let me try to be as uh, discreet and diplomatic as possible while trying to answer your question as well as I can. And, and I'm just going to kind of explain that in part because... I have tried since I left government to be as as nonpartisan as I possibly can and to be as positive about what people are doing right and not necessarily um, tear down um, people who I think, you know, uh, need some critique. Um, I'm also cognizant of the fact that I'm have a, a major role at a university that depends upon public resources uh, from all orders of government. And I would not want to um, say anything that would, uh, that would um, undermine the uh, support of, that our university gets from, from governments. Uh, so Jim, if, anybody I, messes, if anybody messes with your funding, we're on yeah. that. 
Okay. okay. They're going to have to, they're going to have to deal with us. So I'll tell them, I'll say you canceled that because of what I said. Anyway, so that's my, that's, I just want to make sure your listeners know that's kind of where I'm coming from. So, and that's why I will be a little bit discreet. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the patterns of sort of a, a high level command at the level of the first minister in the country have been developing over a long period of time. So I don't think we're going to just attribute this to the current leader. Um, we know that that his predecessor was accused of the same thing where power was centralized in the prime minister's office. Um, I wish it didn't have to be that way. I don't mm -hmm. think it has to be that way. Um, I work here in a system where I've got five vice deans that have different kinds of roles in, in the faculty. I sit down with them uh, as a group on a weekly basis, on in, as individuals almost every single week. I get their advice. I give them the liberty to run their uh, particular portions of the program. And, you know, I those are the right people that need to have that authority and from whom I need to get my uh, feedback. It's not exactly a comparison mm -hmm. to what, what it looks like to have a prime minister in a cabinet, but um, I think that we've gotten to a place where cabinet ministers are under a lot of control often by uh, unelected officials and where there's not a lot of uh, abilities to to get smart outside advice. And I don't think that that's the best way to run any organization, let alone a country. You know, I, I think a lot of people do uh, draw parallels between business leadership or, or uh, you know, public sector leadership. Um, you know, in the and the the centralized control that a first minister and their staff has. Um, so I'll press once more gently on this, though. You know, if people identify the great flaw of the uh, of the Liberal government right now, it's the fact that they they don't seem to be able to uh, anticipate like all the possible outcomes of the things that they do. So hence legislation has to be withdrawn or heavily amended or, you know, people say things and then realize they've said the wrong thing and they have to walk them back. Um, you know, I, again, like I think I think in journalism, we often attribute we lay too much responsibility at the feet of the first minister. I mean, it's just one person. But uh, the one thing I would sort of say, like in what you described, the culture of it, though, is created by the first minister. So, I mean, if people think that that the, this prime minister has too much control and maybe doesn't listen to cabinet ministers as much. Is it really unfair to point like to sort of say that prime minister Trudeau is, is the author of that culture? At the end of the day, the person at the top sets the culture, right? Uh, so uh, I think that's um, not unique to the current federal government. We see it in provinces uh, mm -hmm. across the country as well. Uh, I don't think it's in the best interest of Canadians. I think a more inclusive, open, um, listening uh, government uh, would serve us better. Um, and I think, you know, you've, you nailed it when you talked about the fact that there's something going on when major pieces of legislation get out the door and then there's a huge backlash and then everything has to be either scrapped or or uh, completely overhauled to sort of say what 
what went wrong in the process that that it got this far without realizing how problematic the the legislation mm-hmm. was. So that seems to have happened again and again, and it strikes me that there's something with the the listening side uh, of government that's not working. I know that you're walking a fine line here to to think deeply about what you know what your role is in the the events of 2019. Um, I, I think what we've talked about on the podcast a number of times is there are certain elements within the current federal liberal cabinet uh, that reduce diversity or uh, don't include uh, certain elements of the country. And one of the most important thing I think is that most of the major cabinet ministers are urban. And there's not a lot of uh, rural voices. Uh, And then, of course, the whole idea that uh, you would remove two extremely strong female voices uh, that um, need to be at a table. And and yes, there are other females, but the we're uh, the important role of what our uh, what in our indigenous world we would talk about our sisters and our aunties um, who are vital and of course there's our grandmothers who run the community and that we should be thinking about them at the front and not just because they don't they, they say something we don't like and then of course there's all the other things that go into uh, the relationship between the federal government and has turned we're quite rancorous with the provinces. And that's what I want to turn to and pivot to. Uh, Here we are. We're not out of the pandemic, but we're certainly on a different element and a different a different track of the pandemic. Uh, Now, almost every single healthcare system in the country is in crisis. I I wrote a piece recently about my father's experience in the emergency room here in Manitoba and how atrocious it is and how what a nightmare it is. Um, Large part of that has been because of provincial decisions, not federal decisions, but the provincial governments are saying money, money, money. So Tuesday, the great offer, uh, and I say the great offer because, I mean, never has there been more anticipation for uh, a piece of slid across the table than than it was on Tuesday. Uh, 196 billion over 10 years. Uh, 46 billion of that is completely unplanned for. It's just brand new money. It was not previously budgeted. Uh, you're the former Minister of Health. Uh, do you see that over 10 years as dealing with some of the uh, major issues of healthcare in the country? And then the second question is, is uh, there's been all this talk around uh, deliverables or particular strings attached, as Quebec would call it, as, as Francois Legault would call it, uh, the expectation that the federal government can make on provinces to where that money will go. Uh, do you think that this is a, a good step in a direction, not enough? So uh, it's been, you know, decades since that since there's been as much hype around a potential health deal as, as we had this week. Um and of course, it's particularly on the minds of Canadians because we've just come through the worst of this pandemic, which has not only, you know, um, led to the death and disablement of of, uh, of a, a large number of Canadians, um, but it has, has, you know, wiped out a huge parts of our health workforce. And those who are left on the front lines are exhausted and demoralized and thinking of leaving. So um, it's never been more important for our leaders the of the, the country and the provinces to get it together. I was disappointed with the deal that was offered. Um, and it's not about what the dollar value was that, you know, I was it the right number could have been more. What I was disappointed at was the lack of vision. 
you know, that it's, there was really nothing in the deal that was offered to say, we could do things differently. Here's what health workers and health policy experts have been telling us would make the system better. And we had a chance, like the appetite's been there in the public and there's new money going into the system. So um, I'm not sure if you've uh, heard any of this conversation around primary care or lack of access to family doctors, but you know, there's data out now that six and a half million Canadians don't have access to a family doctor. And I'm sure you know lots of those people uh, in Winnipeg that don't have access to a family doctor. It's partly because we have never designed our systems properly that way in Canada. <laughs> And uh, several of my colleagues and I have been advocating around the concept that in this country, every kid has access to a public school. We would think it was appalling if we had 6 million kids that couldn't go to public school because we hadn't figured it out. That would be absurd. Why can't we do the same with primary care teams, right? Why can't we say, this is your neighborhood, we're going to have a primary care team in your neighborhood, and it's going to be open seven days a week. And when you move into our neighborhood, that's where you're going to go get your care. That is actually doable. And it will cost less than what we're doing now because all those people that don't have a family doctor or other primary care home are going to emerge or they're not getting their care, which means they're getting sicker and not getting their cancers and everything else diagnosed early enough, or else they get into hospital and they can't get home because no one will take care of them at home. So we actually had a moment this week when the, the premiers and the prime minister could have said, we are going to put all this new money in and it's going to be used so that five years from now, every Canadian will have a primary care home. Um, we saw nothing like that. We saw, here's a few things you could work on, pick one of these four, here's a bit of extra money, let us know what you're going to do with that. But how is a Canadian supposed to know that something's going to actually change? And if they're waiting 18 months to see a specialist, how are they going to, how is that going to fix anything for them? So <laughs> I'm not sure. I think I've probably gone a bit off where your question nope. started, but, but um We've we've lacked the the leadership, uh, and uh, it was when Canadians were holding out hope that maybe there was good news. They didn't get it. So um, a horrible admission on my part. I'm a I'm an incredible Kai High nerd. Uh, the Canadian Institute for Health Information. So uh, I spend hours trying to figure out how their online tables work. It's uh, there should be a separate post-secondary course on just operating it's very complex but anyways it's supposed to be the national the national database for uh, measuring healthcare outcomes and you know the one thing i've learned in tracking kai high is that it's not a national picture at all because every province has a different system of tracking data some provinces don't even report on the major metrics that uh, kai high tracks so, and I know like you, so you've commented on this, uh, uh, one of the issues, which is data collection, which could be kind of a gateway to setting targets, right? So we ask, you know, provide the money and then Ottawa asks the the provinces to, okay, report back to us on the following outcomes, show us that you spent the money where you say you're going to spend it. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, once we get the data, we'll know if the money is producing the outcomes and, um, successive prime ministers have been afraid, like that's, I don't even see that as strings because we're not telling them how to spend the money. We're just telling them 
that they should tell us how they're spending the money. So why, A, talk about the importance of data um, in, in healthcare funding, and then why are politicians so afraid to make that, like, uh, like globally, make that request to the, the healthcare system? Okay, this is great. So first of all, congratulations on being a Kai High. <laughs> it sounds to me like you should be getting a PhD in Kai High uh, analytics because uh, it is it is tough to go in there. You're a brave person if you go in and try and figure things out. I have so. way way too much time on my hands. That's why I do a podcast now. So so I would say a couple of things coming out of your comment. One is. Um, yes, absolutely. We need a national database that is reflective and allows us to answer the questions across the country. And we don't because there aren't national standards and there's not, um, there are no requirements for interoperability. And I agree with you. I'm like, why are we all being so nice to each other? Why doesn't somebody just say, you know, the feds are the ones that would, should say it. And if, if they're, you know, given that things like privacy and security are, are a, 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 a no, uh, there's no options on those. Those have to be into the system. But given that, there needs to be sharing of data and there needs to be agreement on the definitions of those data. Uh, I think we're getting closer to that. So that will help. But you're right. That should be non negotiable. Like that's doesn't even need to be discussed. There needs to be a national database to be able to look at a bunch of things so that we can figure out if we're getting better or worse on whatever it happens to be. As it relates to something like a big health accord like this, though, I actually I have been thinking that um, Kaihai is the place to actually do the under the hood metrics and see how things are going. But not everybody does what you do, Dan. And so mm -hmm. the average Canadian is not going to go look at Kaihai data and say, "Hmm, did mental health care get better in Manitoba, or did you know is there better home care in Saskatchewan?" Like it's just too complicated to figure that out. That's why we need like really obvious deliverables. Do you have a primary care provider, a home, a family health home where you can go and get your care? And people can say, not me, not yet. Like it's pretty easy to say whether you've got that or not. And if we can make those kind of universal commitments that will be very clear to everybody where we're aiming together, it will allow us to be, the you know, not just one government to another to hold one another to account it's canadians who should mm -hmm. be holding the governments to account it's our money after all that they're using on supposedly on our behalf so i think trying to set targets that are easily understood do you have access to care or don't you um and and then to have mechanisms to say if we're not getting that here's where i can go and report that i don't have access and you guys better fix that so if you if I could get you to put your politician's hat on, uh, if you rem remember where you've stashed that. Um, so the politics of it, though, are quite fascinating. So I'll give you very briefly my theory about why prime ministers are afraid to say, OK, you can't have uh, Canadian health transfer money unless you show us where you're spending it and 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 produce the following data points. Um because I don't think it's an issue anywhere else but Quebec. I, I think the the rest of the country, you know, like in places like Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, British Columbia, Ontario, it's like, eh, data, strings, you know, I just want to know how long I'm going to be waiting in an ER. 
But in Quebec, that point translates into a whole debate about Quebec autonomy and the right of self-determination. And so, I, I mean, am I am I uh, investing too much political muscle in, in Quebec's influence on this? And if it's not Quebec, what is it that that is making, what political issue is making prime ministers afraid to do what they need to do? That's a really interesting discussion. And I think it has to do with political issues and wanting to get reelected and the power of Quebec in that regard. I do think, though, if I may just bring us back to uh, Indigenous issues, it also has a, uh, has to do with sovereignty, right? So I feel very strongly about uh, data sovereignty as it relates to Indigenous peoples, uh, and that has been a barrier. I think governments are only now starting to get around to recognizing Indigenous rights when it comes to the sharing of data. And First Nations have done some really great work in this regard. There's a fantastic organization called the First Nations Information Governance Committee, FNIGC, I think. Not sure if I've got the initials quite right, that has really done a good job at trying to educate everybody about uh, principles around uh, data management and stewardship and sovereignty. So without suggesting that I completely understand the Quebec mindset, there is a sovereignty issue there as well, right? From mm -hmm. a sense of, you know, it's our data, but that's, there are ways to get around that. I mean, we're having those conversations with First Nations leaders now to say, we respect your sovereignty to own and control your data. Uh, but given that, let's find an agreement between us to be able to share that because we are, the reality is we are sharing this land and space together. Right. Not always as well as we could, um, but we're going to have to find a way because we are now uh, living, sharing the land um, that we're, we need to share our data as well. So I, I think that might be an interesting framing for the conversation with Quebec. But yet, uh, First Nations are not invited to First Minister meetings and uh, are constitutionally kept from being at the table, never mind the all the other political ramifications. Uh, you know, this this week, what I said was, this is a perfect example, and I hope everybody notices it, that when you exclude First Nations from the table, not only do you, you, you actually keep some of the, the best... Uh, practices of health in the country that's taking place. I mean, no one really handled the pandemic better than First Nations. I mean, we were willing to give up hum basic human rights, curfews, um, rights of movement, and in order to deal with the pandemic. So there's lots to learn there. But then also in Manitoba, there was data sovereignty for the first time, which was a direct uh, a way of dealing with the pandemic, and, and therefore lives were saved. Uh, so it's, I mean, it is, I think, uh, very important that we uh, underline that several times, that when you look at a first minister's meeting like this, I mean, healthcare is an important issue, but of course, at the same meeting, they're talking about what is the, how do we get, deal with inflation and how do we deal with the issues of the United States offering tax exemptions to basically get themselves out of this inflationary mess that they're in. Um, and of course, the answer to that is going going to be what Canada will look at as lands and resources. Guess who you got to deal with for that? And so not having First Nations, Métis, Inuit peoples at those First Minister meetings is a perfect example of working backwards or working almost impossible. Because then what's going to happen is you get marches later 
when you make decisions without First Nations. So I hope people understand the connection there. Yeah, that was a big miss this week, uh, and surpri- really surprising actually that they that. But uh, it has not. Our country has not yet um, been able to figure that out, and it, we're we're going to be stuck until that table can be a, a federal, provincial, territorial, First Nations, Inuit, Métis table. Yeah, I wonder when that will be. Uh, but uh, that's a conversation for another time. Okay, yeah. we've already taken up. A- wait, 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 just say, I've got nine more things that I want to talk about here. I want to. Talking about like, you know, doctor salaries versus fees. I want to talk about unnecessary diagnostic tests. And, you know, can't we do like we could do a part two and a part three? No, no. Uh, I, I feel like Jane's got to get to work here. Oh, I think she's given us, fair enough. She's given us more than enough. And uh, and I really appreciate you uh, coming and joining on the Negon and Lone Ranger podcast, Jane. Thanks so much. It's been so nice to be with you. And I'd be happy to come back anytime. Thanks mm-hmm. for a great conversation. There you there go. go. You yep, you're coming you're back happy. now. Yep. Okay. I Thanks want a lot, you to Jane. know that that, that the uh, I didn't. Uh, I'm now looking up what Kaihai is, and <laughs> it's it, it's okay. Uh, Nigan, we'll uh, we'll I'll get you there. Don't worry, I'll get you there. Completely lost. Okay, miigwech, Shane. Thanks so much. Miigwech. Bye for Bye. now. And that brings us to the end uh, of another episode of Negan and the Lone Ranger. Uh, like to thank uh, Rhonda. Like to thank Jane Philpot. That was a totally amazing interview. Yeah, no, it was. She she is a uh, in the hockey parlance. She's a beauty. Uh, <laughs> So uh, yeah, I think she would. I think she would appreciate. That. I actually She's, think she would appreciate that having spent yeah. a bunch of time with her. She definitely is. A, you know, she really knows her stuff, and then on, she's also just very approachable and down to earth. Yeah, and Adam, you you just you wanted to alert readers to one other thing that's going. So on. Yeah. I feel like Columbo. Just one more thing before we wrap up this week. What's the status of Operation Arnett? Oh, uh, our our uh, campaign to get uh, Canadian actor uh, and uh, fellow just, podcaster I'm Will Arnett. Waiting, but it's bated it's, breath to hear where this is. Well, going. Week, I, I week had two. I did yeah, it. Well, not week. I mean, I started weeks ago. Uh, yeah, that week two hundred. Uh, no, uh, we uh, this year this week I unveiled via Twitter the first two items in the VIP gift bag that we will provide to Will when, not if, he comes on the show. I'm going to be broke. Much like uh, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Pierre Poliev, he's a future friend of the podcast. A future friend of the podcast. So the first two items are uh, a fantastic um, uh, Winnipeg Jet sweatshirt with the indigenous-themed Wasak-designed uh, I, I want know, one logo. of those. Hold on here. Yeah, it's yeah. I think you have one. <laughs> I have more than one. You have more than one. Uh, but, that's right. And what was the second thing? The second thing I actually I was I was very excited about because four dozen. I only showed two dozen in the photo because you know it's Twitter. But four dozen frozen handmade pierogies made by genuine Ukrainian babas in a North End church. Uh, and uh, in addition to the four dozen pierogies that I will make available to Will Arnett, I will also consider giving him my contact for the pierogies. You know, my pierogi oh, supplier geez. is like the the one thing about pierogi club is you don't discuss pierogi club. And now I've broken the. Say, there seem, there <laughs> would have to be three contracts all signed. Yeah, but in it, secrecy. Yeah, so there are more things to come in the VIP gift bag, which, as we well know, is like standard. 
standard swag to lure celebrities to events. The pro- so. You know what the problem with you telling, uh, you know, saying that we're going all out for a will and every yeah. guest that I ask now uh, is like, where's the gift, where's the gift bag? Ooh. Where- I didn't think of that. <laughs> You're yeah. creating a problem for me uh, in when I go and ask people to I'm be gonna, on the podcast. I'm going to make a big tray of Rice Krispie squares. <laughs> puff Week squares yeah, if it's puff from wheat, puff where wheat. I grew yeah, up. Absolutely, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm going to wrap them in uh, like, you know, cellophane with a little red ribbon. And we'll put that in a little, like a little free press bag. And so they'll think, you know. But, I mean, listen, like the, the big bag... Is for the big celeb, so that's just the <laughs> you're just you're just digging a hole now. Uh, we'd like to thank uh, CJNU as always and our producer Adam for the great work that he does. Uh, this was a lot of uh, heavy lifting this week, uh, editing wise, and so just huge thanks to Adam and of course our all of our colleagues at the Winnipeg Free Press, uh, our editor Paul Simin, and all the great support that he gives to us as well as all the. Wonderful people who help us to upload this, uh, the free press. Too many to mention, uh, but great people who uh, do everything from uh, making sure that we look good and shiny uh, to making sure that our podcast gets to all corners of the world, which is now listened to in four to five continents, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, we remain, we're huge in Hawaii. I just, we remain... (laughs) Huge. I don't know who's out there. Thank, there must be some expat Winnipeg. Well, thanks to the Winnipeggers who winter in Hawaii is all I can say. <laughs> and and my apologies as well to Paul Simin for being Tonto's second victim in our soon-to-be-released slasher version uh, of the podcast. He deserves so, it. He deserves it. Okay. I'll just leave it at that. I wonder uh, what's going to happen to Silver, or is Silver going to be the last one standing? Uh, well, actually, you know, let, let's not give it away, but in the bloody showdown at the end, there is only one four-legged creature who comes out alive. I'm just going to leave it at that, so... Thanks, everybody. Miigwech, everybody. Thank you.